This is the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer, and today we are looking at the adventurous side of travel. Why not? We're all stuck at home. We might as well dream. I have two guests. The first is Devin Murphy. He is a professor at Bradley University. But before that happened, he saw the world on cruise ships. In fact, that's the name of a terrific article he wrote for Outside Magazine. I interviewed him about that, and here's our interview. So nice to have you on the travel show, Devin. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate being here. And I so enjoyed your article. You you started it in a really moving way. When you were in high school, you had the only job that would take a 16-year-old, at least in your neighborhood. Uh, tell us about that job and, and how it led you to decide to have a life of adventure, at least for a while. Sure. Yeah. Where I grew up, I I got a job just helping somebody doing construction for a little while. And and I liked having a little pocket money. And this is when I was 14 or 15. And then uh, when I was 16, I thought, well, I can actually get on a real payroll here. But the only place that would hire a 16-year-old boy was the local nursing home. And and so I said, oh, I can just do whatever. And they they hired me to be a waiter and wash dishes. And, and I was happy to do that. Uh, but then when I got there, I didn't really know what I was signing up for. I, I worked in the Alzheimer's ward. And it was, I was sort of emotionally not mature enough to understand what that meant or, or what that was going to look like. So, so I, I had this job and I, I kept going back for about three years all through uh, high school. And I, and I kind of, I, maybe I was an idealistic kid, but I thought, geez, if this is how life potentially is going to end, which is, was a little sad, I guess I didn't know how to process all that. I thought I was going to live, you know, hopefully an adventurous life before that. So it sort of lit a fire under me to, to try to experience as much as I could while I could, because I, I got this glimpse of people at the end of their lives, which was really motivating. So that's that's why I decided that if I had a chance to go have an adventure, I would seek it out and, and do so. And so you took pen to paper, or maybe uh, you got hit your typewriter, and you wrote a lot of letters asking different companies in adventurous places to hire you. Tell us a little bit about that. I well, I got kind of lucky. I have two older sisters, and one is ten years older than me. And when she was in college, she took a job in Maine at a YMCA adventure camp. So when I got to high school, I was always in the back of my head thinking about, oh, she had a great time up there. And so I, I wrote the summer camp and I said, hey, I'm Sabrina's younger brother. Could I come up and work for the summer? And this and this was after working my first year at that uh, nursing home uh, during the summer of my junior and senior year of high school. And they said, sure, you can be our adventure camp counselor. And you can teach canoeing, hiking, biking, rock climbing, and sailing. And I said, great. I don't know how to do any of those things. <laughs> <laughs> but they said, come on up. We'll show you. And so wow. I, did, I did that for two summers. And after that, I realized, oh, I really love being outside and, and in nature. And I learned some cool skills doing that. And so I wanted to go find wilder places. And then I started applying to basically national parks and I served hot dogs for a summer at, at um, Rocky Mountain National Park on the top of the pass there. And that let me hike in the, in the national park. And then I really loved hiking. So I thought, where are the bigger mountains? And I was a tour guide in uh, Glacier National Park for a summer. And then I thought, well, I got to go to Alaska. And I kept trying to go to Alaska. And, and that's where I ended up um, applying to. I, I thought I'd go work in Denali National Park. But 
I applied to everywhere that was hiring summer employment. And this was after my sophomore year of college. I got a call from a small cruise ship company. And this that started you off. Yeah. And you wrote and you worked for years on a number of small cruise ships. Mostly uh, one was Cruise West. I, that went out of business. Did they come back? Do you know? Or are they still out of business? Uh, well, so it, it got a little funky there because there's conglomerates that got involved. Cruise West yeah. sort of went under, but I was working for Clipper Cruise Line. And one night I woke up, I went to bed one night working for Clipper at sea. And I woke up in the morning working for Cruise West because they sold two of their ships. Yeah. Um, and Clipper Cruise Line got bought up by a conglomerate and kind of parceled off. And then after a while, Cruise West was going to, the signs were on the wall that it was coming. And so yeah. that started going downhill. So so yeah, that was sort of the end. That was the beginning and the end of my of my shipboard time. <laughs> well, then that's a good metaphor for your life uh, on board these ships. You were seeing the world, and yet I, I hope don't take it. Uh, please don't take offense at this, but you were kind of a surf. Uh, you you belonged to the ship. You were doing often really dirty work, uh, but it it allowed you to see amazing things. So let's talk about the amazing things first, and then the dirty work second. Sure. Uh, so yeah. what were some of the most uh, amazing things you got to see because you were on ship after ship after ship. Sure. Um, I, I absolutely fell in love with all aspects of being out in the natural world. And there's these places where sort of the water meets the wild. And so a small ship can go into, into, into tiny little ports and turn a corner. And there's a, there's a massive grizzly bear trying to gnaw barnacles off of low tide rocks. Wow. Um, and on the night shift, I, on my first ship that first summer, I had to work eight hours on, eight hours off, which meant I slept every other night. And then we had the night shift. And I got really sick doing that. I ended up with pneumonia and a cold and because oh. I was exhausted out in the rain all day. But yeah. I, I was I was having to dock these ships in, in these beautiful small ports. And at night, I'd see the northern lights. And then when I got to the, uh, the, the pretty serious expedition ships, you know, I got to go to Antarctica and the Arctic and and a polar bear swam after us because it smelled us in our little boat. And, and that was a little scary. So it just every time I, I, I would take a deep breath and realize I'm in this like once in a lifetime experience all around me. And, and I just, I sort of had the mentality to seek joy in that. And I'm really glad I did. And maybe that's because I, I started from where I did in that nursing home, which was sort of scary. And, and it kind of made me feel like life is finite. So you might as well enjoy it and, yeah. and, and look for beauty where, where it's going to present itself to you. Well, it's good that you did look for beauty because sometimes you were asked to do things that were very difficult. You discussed, you, you discovered uh, that there was a real caste system on the ship. You were kind of in the middle, but you often had to treat people who really weren't being paid what they should have been paid uh, not so well. Can you talk a little bit about how the ship's hierarchy worked? Sure. So there's there's a few different scenarios here. When I first started uh, my first summer in Alaska, I worked for a, a small 50-passenger ship with about 16 crew, and they were all Americans. Um, uh -huh. And so it basically just stayed on in American waters. And so it had to follow American um, naval rules, which means you know you have to hire and, and pay taxes and, and do all these things. Um, and so I was just a happy little camper doing grunt work. And then when I got a little older, I, I got on uh, with Clipper Cruise Line, and they had two vessels that basically ran North America and Central America, and they hired all American crew too, mostly kind of college kids or kids on a gap year, or people mm -hmm. just trying to adventurous people, right? And they would do the grunt work, and then there were professional mariners, so the captain and the mates and the engineers. 
And and then Clipper also had these two expedition ships that were meant to go, and they could be ice class vessels. They could break through ice. They could go to uh, to, to pretty serious ocean waters. And they had international crew, and they flew what's called the flag of convenience. And these huge mega ships fly these flags of convenience. And a flag of convenience is saying, "I'm going to pay some money to a country and and fly their flag for my ship." And I'll have to follow their maritime rules. And I'm probably going to seek out a country whose maritime rules are a bit lax. And so I can hire people from different nations and, and hire them for much less. And so I was very idealistic and loving my adventures, but also sort of becoming a little more mature and emotionally open to other people's experiences as well. And so, you know, the ships I work on were crewed by Filipinos who were really hardworking, but severely underpaid compared to what I was doing. And as an example, one of the waiters who worked himself up from a dishwasher was actually capable of piloting the ship. He was he was wow. a captain's licenses, but just for for work opportunity lack, he he was doing whatever work he could. So it was a real caste system. And you're right, I was sort of a surf. I was part of the ship. I didn't really have any maritime skills, but I was I was always willing to do whatever work because the experiences were so profound. But I did yeah. get to see this class system. And speaking of those flags of convenience, uh, this is just something that I wrote about today. They're going to be very inconvenient this summer for Carnival and Princess and Holland America because Canada just announced they're not going to allow any cruise ships to go to Canadian ports. And so for Alaskan cruising, this is a little side note, sorry, it just made me think of it. Uh, it, There won't be cruises this summer because all of those major Really, American companies decided to flag their ships elsewhere, which means that by law, they have to go to Canadian ports. So even though theoretically they could do a fine uh, cruise in Canada only going or in Alaska only going to American ports, but they probably won't this year. So interesting. Yeah, it's interesting how the pandemic has put so many things on its head. One of the things you had to do was you, you had to often deal with the passengers. Um, how did you feel about the passengers? Um, well, I, I, let me think about that. Uh, <laughs> so I, I, I had a lot of roles. You know, when I was 19, I was first on this adventure and I was happy as, as could be. You know, I was, I was just a joyful, youthful, energetic person. So working eight hours on, eight hours off for three and a half months straight was no problem. Um, and I was a joyful helper. Um, and then when I when I went back to ships after college, I, I, I tried to stay on ships, but 9-11 sort of put a, the brakes on all that on the tourism industry. And, and after the industry recovered, I went to these expedition ships and I was essentially hired to be sort of a, a charming young American face to the crew. Huh. And I was the assistant hotel manager in one ship. And then I became a cruise director and expedition leader as I went on in my in my time there. Um, and so I would cater to these people who were having these once in a lifetime experiences. And sure. and they were super joyful. And, and a lot of them had wonderful experiences. And, and, and I really loved the fact that people were going to go out and experience something so unique and beautiful about the natural world that they would fall in love with it. And to, to, kind of treasure and love the world, you want to protect it, right? So I felt like there was real value to people having these experiences of how wonderful other places and other countries can be because your world becomes more global and then you think like a global citizen, which I thought was really valuable. On the other hand, I would have to go out and maybe work 
12 to 15 hours a day for five to six months at a time. And you would get deeply exhausted. Yeah. And, and, and those 12 hours aren't in a row. They, I would be woken up in the middle of the night, you know, just all kinds. And so I would get deeply fatigued. And, and towards the end of my career, I, I was getting a little burnout. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and frankly, a little lonely for having really no personal life of my own. And so I, I was ready to, to be done with that when I was done. So a lot of it was a love of passengers and a lot of it was, was a deep fatigue because I was, as you say, sort of working as a servant for other people. And that gets, that gets tiring. Yeah. And I thought, I thought that was really an interesting insight that a lot of people on these cruise ships are deeply, deeply lonely, that you didn't want to end up with that kind of life where you just had no roots and no close family uh, around you. Yeah, I had uh, with my two older sisters, um, their first children were born once I was I had to call from a satellite phone from between Greenland and Iceland. And the other I was somewhere off the coast of South America. And, you know, I would have leaves and I would fly to see them. But I still, you know, I was I was getting to my mid 20s and single without much prospect of where to settle down. And I was seeing people in their 50s on these boats that that were kind of not really living a life I wanted to live. Like I, I was loving the travel part of my life, but maybe that was a young man's, you know, (laughs) adventure that was, that that was finite. Yeah. Well, I, I, I love the article. I wanted to read a little part of it aloud because I I thought it was so beautifully written. You end the article by saying, what I wanted most was to gather stories and experience it all. I wanted that so badly to unhinge my jaw and swallow the world. Perhaps I knew I needed to spend all my youthful energy so there would be none left to sour into regret. Looking back, I'm so happy to have had this treasured adventure on ships that went everywhere. My cabin's port... Porthole gave me a view of several oceans as the ships flowed down to tropical rivers and rubbed against giant icebergs. On any given night, we might pull up alongside the Sydney Opera House, Chelsea Pier, or a rank dumpster in Port Morrisby. For so long, everything drifted. The ship, the clouds, the people, the creatures underneath, everything, including me. It's just a, a beautiful, beautiful piece. Many congratulations, and thank you for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for reading that so lovely and, and for your time and interest. I really appreciate it. So once again, I highly recommend you look at Devin's essay in Outside Magazine. It, it really is a a beautiful essay, and we didn't get to everything about it in this uh, segment. You never can. Up next, we have Jeremy Hance. He's written an entire book about his struggle with adventure, and you can hear why the struggle happened in the title of his book. It's called Baggage. Confessions of a Globe-Trotting Hypochondriac. So here is Jeremy. So Jeremy, welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. Thanks so much for having me. So I have to ask you, the, the book seems really timely because I think going forward, we may all be globe-trotting hypochondriacs. I, I think this terrible pandemic, this terrible disease Mm. has made us all 
more aware of uh, the dangers that await us. Is that am I am I underplaying what you wrote, or do you think that's fair? No, I I, I think that's fair. I mean, I you know, it's it was funny because. Uh, you know, I didn't. I obviously, when I was writing the book, uh, it was before the pandemic, and then as the book the book came out uh, last year in 2020. So in the midst of all of this wildness, and you know, it it does I think ring true to the fact that a lot more people who travel are going to be probably having a lot more understandable anxiety. And you know, part of the story of the book is is my discovering that I have uh, OCD. Um, I had already been diagnosed with depression and anxiety when I was a child, but like in my mid-20s, after a pretty wild trip to Peru, uh, I I finally got diagnosed with OCD. And then it's really about my um, learning how to live with that, especially through my trips, right? Because it's the story of multiple trips over the last... 20 years of my life for as a journalist and and learning how to how to kind of <laughs> accept that part of me and then handle that part of me and and you know uh, all the ridiculous situations you get yourself in when you have panic attacks abroad and so I do think that the, the book is is very timely in that in that you know when we do all start to travel again we're all going to have some some understandable anxiety it's travel is going to look different you know and and we're going to have I think a little bit of just trauma from living through this last, uh, you know, basically almost 12 months now of, of how much the world has changed, uh, how much we've, we've lost, maybe lessons that we've hopefully been able to learn a little bit, but just it's, it's going to look a little more intense for everybody. And so I think the book, strangely, you know, there was no plan in that sense, <laughs> right. but strangely does kind of fit the mood and, you know, the, the sense of travel, you know, I think for, for a lot of people, it was it had gotten so sort of easy, uh, whereas mm-hmm. historically, you know, there's, you know, we've only had airplanes going uh, commercially for, you know, what, 60, 70, 80 years, you know, uh, right. historically yeah. travel was always was one generation, right? Yeah. Um, and and so I, I think that we're going to kind of uh, be looking at travel differently. And, and I hope part of that is appreciating travel in a new way as well. I know I'm so excited to go anywhere, somewhere. So right. I, I think I've, I've learned to miss it a lot, too, which is which has been kind of nice um, and, and a good lesson at how blessed we've all been to be able to travel. And I really hope I can get back to it in, in yeah. you know, 2021 or 2022, depending on <laughs> how quickly we- On the virus and uh, and on the vaccines. And yeah, absolutely. But I don't, you know, I, I started with that question and now I'm double thinking myself because I don't want to downplay the important message you have in the book about mental illness. I was really surprised at one point you talk about how many Americans have some form of mental illness, that it's really quite common. Yeah. It, it is. It is very. It is way more common than I think uh, historically have thought. Um, and and there's probably some different debates about why that is. You know, is that just a, sort of a genetic component in, in the human species, or is that sort of like what we've done to ourselves in the postmodern world? Are we making ourselves more prone to these things? Um, but yeah, it is really common, especially when you when you start counting people who have maybe don't have chronic lifelong mental illness, but maybe have a year or two where uh, they struggle with depression or they struggle with some other, you know, a sudden uptick in anxiety. And again, it sort of fits the, again, the mood. Like I think I've had friends who've, who've come to me since the book came out and been like, wow, you know, I didn't realize you struggled so much with this. And I'm like, oh yeah, 
But then they're like, yeah, and you know, this year has been so hard and I, I feel more fragile and vulnerable. And I think that's so true that we're all kind of looking at our own mental health and our own positions a little differently now in the last year. And yeah, the, the book is, it's, it's both a travel book with a lot of funny stories and a lot of stories about nature and wildlife, but it is, it is also a story about my own difficulties with mental illness. A lot of that told humorously because that's the way I sort of approach it. Um, well, I, I, I think I think that's what's going to draw people to the book and, and probably why your friends never realized you were struggling because you have such a wry sense of humor and you're so good at laughing at yourself that, you know, it, it makes people think, oh, he's going to be OK, I would think. So and the other thing I really loved about the book, it's not just about mental illness. It's a really good travel book. It's about different parts of the world. So let's start with the one that you went to before you knew you had OCD, which was Peru. Mm -hmm. And and you bring to the fore what an ancient civilization this was. Yeah. Uh, what what draws me to travel? Um, and, and Peru, uh, you know, going to Peru, uh, I was in my mid-20s. Uh, it was sort of a spur of the moment trip. My wife and I spent six weeks out there and it was a trip that changed my life. But to to, to go there and to sort of delve into the various ancient <laughs> civilizations that yeah. came and went, it, it was really, uh, you know, opens your mind and your imagination and, and changes the way you see the world. And well, I, you, you make the point that one of those civilizations was as old as Mesopotamia. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and that's only been recently discovered. Um, that's yeah. only been in the last like 20 years, I think, where they, the... Um, where they've discovered this this civilization in Peru that w- went back about the same time as uh, you know Sumer and uh, early Egypt were getting off the ground, and that's you know when you think about sort of how we view uh, the history of the world, that changes kind of everything. Um, yeah. In the sense that you have this other civilization on the other side of the world that was that was building large structures and uh, having uh, you know growing multiple crops and and doing, and we don't even know what they're doing because they're just uncovering this now. There's very right. You know, uh, but it sort of changes how we view how civilizations start, where they started, and, and how many different places they sort of they sort of grew up. And I think that that that, that telling some of those stories, I, I kind of in each chapter, I wanted to give a sense of the place, I wanted to give a sense of the culture, I wanted to give a sense of the history. You know, um, and and that was really just a, a vital importance to me because that's one of the things that I love about reading good travel writing is being able to have that narrator, that traveler. Tell me more about than just their experiences, but the, the context of the places they are. Right. Well, I think when people think Peru, they always think immediately of Machu Picchu, yeah. but uh, where you went very briefly because your wife got terribly ill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she was the one who got ill. That was that was a good twist. Yes. Uh, <laughs> it always happens but, that way. She's the one who always runs into trouble, and I'm the always one who's panicking. So, <laughs> But uh, you went to a place that I'm embarrassed to say I'd never heard of before. And it sounds extraordinary. Tell me if I'm pronouncing it right. Manu National Park? Yes, Manu National Park. And so that was my... Manu National Park is deep in the heart of the Amazon rainforest. There are only really two ways to get there. You can either fly in on like a small prop plane, or you can do what we did, which was like basically an overland trip over the Andes Mountains from Cusco, which is uh, obviously the historical Inca city, uh, into the rainforest. Uh, And that's like... It's probably like 13... It's a long trip. It's like, a, you know, we did it over two days, basically. Hmm. Um, and then we were just on boat for 10 days in Manu. And Manu is one of the most sort of uh, remote places in the world. There are sections of the park that are completely closed off to visitors where uncontacted or, or you know, self-isolated indigenous tribes still live. And, and to be there 
really changed my life because it, it, it reawakened in me a love of uh, nature and animals that I'd had as a child, but sort of, you know, as, as you grow up and get into different things and, and become passionate about new things and, and new places and things, I hadn't really explored that part of myself for a few years. And so it really reawoken my love and my concern for our natural world. And so that was the trip that sort of ended up spurring me to luckily become an environmental journalist. So it was a vital yeah. trip, both in that it like kind of changed my life and the career that I took. And at the same time, it sort of exposed the OCD uh, uh, that had been going on for, you know, a long right. time. But there were some hilarious parts to it. Uh, I, I loved, I come from, well, I don't come from, my husband's family is a family of birders. Mm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so your discussion of how nuts mm-hmm. birders are, yep. oh my goodness, that hit home. They are nuts. They're crazy. <laughs> like I I love birds. Like I'm a nature guy. Like I, I you know, I, I'm really and I've I've kind of tried in the past to be a birder, but I just can't I can't I can't do the things that they do. Like, you know, the lifeless and the and the getting up at four in the morning to go find this, you know, to go just hear this specific bird. Like I'm just like, no, nah, I'm, I'm gonna sleep in. I'll, I'll check it out later. Um, well, and they go to the ends of the earth to see one bird and one then they bird. turn around and leave. That's all they're interested in. Yes. It's it's so fascinating. And I'm, so as as a guy who, you know, is an environmental journalist, I've met lots of birders and I have a tremendous amount of respect for them and the things that they will do for that bird. But it's, <laughs> it's a little different. You know, it's, it's, I, I go for sort of the multitude of species and, and, and have a, you know, just, I, I, I mean, often I'm going on an assignment to, to look for a specific animal or something as well, but yeah, it, it is, you know, it, it's a, it's a lovingly uh, told like uh, jokes about how, wildly obsessive birders can be from a guy who's obsessive as well, uh, but just about <laughs> well, different things. Yeah. And the way you described the Amazon, that uh, hyperbole couldn't get far enough mm. because it was such a deeply, I, I hate to use the word spiritual, but but oh, uh, a, yeah. an all-encompassing all yes. place. Uh, and you go into your tent at one point and you see a spider that's the size of a small dog. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was probably exaggerating on that one. Yes. <laughs> okay, it, all right. It felt like that, you know. It, 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 and this is the thing about the Amazon that I think, you know, we, we all in our culture, there, there's sort of this running through cynicism at times, and, and, and there's sort of the oh, we've, we've seen it, we've done it, we've conquered the world kind of a thing, and like you go to the Amazon and you realize none of that's really true. The Amazon is uh, the most beautiful place I've ever been. It is the most wildlife-infused, the most biodiverse place in the world. And it is a profoundly, I think even if you're not a spiritual person, it's profoundly moving to be in a place so full of life and so full of, of, of rich diversity of all the different myriad of species that inhabit our world. And I just, I think every time I go, I feel so blessed to have lived on this particular planet where this kind of thing still exists. Um, And that's where a lot of my concern and drive to, you know, as an environmental journalist to to try and cover some of the issues and and, and the loss, the ongoing destruction of the Amazon is um, obviously one of the highest uh, concerns for me. But it it is it is a place that when you go, I don't think you can ever really forget it. And it's, you know, it's one of the places I, I would say that, you know, if anyone, if you can go once in your life, just once in your life and do it, it's one of the most profound things, you know, experiences you'll ever have. You've been um, to the Peruvian, Peruvian Amazon. Have you been to other parts of the Amazon? Yes. Where would you send people? What, um, or is it all the great? Amazon to, to Manu. I've been to Ecuador. 
the Ecuadorian Amazon, uh, and I've also been to um, the Amazon in Guyana, uh, which, um, if, if people don't know, that's a, a small country in northern part of South America. There's the sort of the trilogy of Guyana, uh, Suriname, and, and French Guyana, and um, we spent two weeks well, we spent a week in Guyana and a couple weeks in Suriname, my wife and I did. And so I've been there uh, three times, all told. You know, all three of the experiences were great. And, and all three of the experiences were rich in their different ways. But I, yeah, I mean, I think, I think Manu National Park, if you want to really get off the beaten path, if you're someone who's willing to do sort of a 10-day, you know, excursion by boat, uh, it's life-changing. There's a lot of places you can go to the Amazon where you can just kind of get to the edge and you can kind of see some things and stay in a nice place. And that's great. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I do think that that it's worthwhile to uh, go a little as deeper in. Um, sure. You know, I, I've stayed at lodges that are run by indigenous people. And that's really Where? meaningful. Uh, in the Amazon? In, in the, yeah, in the Ecuadorian Amazon. I, I see. Lodge, yep, that was run by uh, the Kaiopo tribe. I hope I'm saying that right. And, uh, you know, it's, that's a really cool experience because you're both financially supporting the tribe. And then, but you're also getting a very different experience because you're, I mean, it was, it was a lush place. Like it was, you didn't, it wasn't like roughing it. It was one of the most beautiful places I've ever been in my entire life. But at the same time, you know, your, your guides uh, are often from the indigenous tribe. You're, you have an ability to go visit with various tribes if you want to. Um, And of course, because they're from indigenous tribes, their ability to find wildlife is uncanny. Um, Okay. So that particular lodge is called the Napa Wildlife Lodge. And so I, you know, I've, I've just, I've been very blessed to have, you know, a number of different experiences. And I would really suggest if someone's interested in it, it's not, it's not like one of those, it's not an easy trip. It's, it's, it's obviously going to be more taxing. Uh, and that's the kind of travel that I love is, is pushing myself, but it's one of those things where it, it is worth it and it will change you in a way that I, I think it will be beneficial and, and, and yeah. never forget it. All right. Well, let's get back to the book. So you discover you have OCD, and we also hear a little bit about your younger life uh, and the pro- and the mental health issues your parents had. And then you go on your next trip, <laughs> knowing that you have this condition. How did that play out? I mean, yeah, that's that's so part part of the book is this is this tension between my love of travel, my desire to travel, and the fact that like, uh, when I travel, I usually have panic attacks and get myself into ridiculous situations. And so, you know, it, it really played out. So I did Peru. And then um, a couple, you know, I, I sort of ended up falling into environmental journalism, got very lucky to sort of do this kind of long internship. And then the, the uh, person I was working with, who's the head of Manga Bay, which is a, a environmental news site focused largely on the tropics, uh, a really great site. He was like, "Hey, do you want to come to Suriname?" <laughs> and I was like, "Where's that?" You know, because I and so uh, I had to. We, my wife and I, were like, "We don't know." You know, I had to look it up on a map, and we ended up going there for a conference, a tropical biology conference. But then we spent two weeks on a beach volunteering, working with leatherback sea turtles, and then one week in Guyana, in back into the Amazon rainforest. And it was, you know, it was one of those trips where, you know, at this time I knew I had OCD. I'd, I'd, I'd been in therapy for a long time for it. For a couple of years, I was on medication for it. But, you know, I, it was sort of the realization of, oh, this is still going to be a thing, isn't it? Like I still have, uh-huh. you know, issues and panic attacks and, 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 and deep anxieties. And so, you know, uh, it's, it's really about 
learning to manage that and continuing to travel because I partly because it's my job now that that you know I, I get certain articles or uh, things where I, I need to you know where it's, it's best if I can go somewhere and actually sure. be present. But there's inside of me just a deep wanderlust. You know, um, I I've always had that. And the desire to see new places, meet new people, be around new cultures, eat different foods, and and of course see these animals in the wild is is unquenchable within me. But at the same time, I'm you know I'm having to balance that against the other part of myself, which is like, why are you doing this? You know, and screaming <laughs> all the time. Uh, right. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Well, on that note, <laughs> it's a it's a really delightful book. I so enjoyed reading it, and I've so enjoyed meeting you. Thank you, Jeremy, for appearing on the Travel Show. Thank you so much, Pauline. It's been a real delight. Once again, that was Jeremy Hance, the author of Baggage, Confessions of a Globetrotting Hypochondriac. I wish we could have gotten more to the the history that he discusses and the details of the nature. He kind of gave you his process, but I think you'll really enjoy reading this book. It's, It's a fascinating read. And we also hope, as I always say at this point, that you'll be coming to us, reading the Fromer Guides and reading Fromers.com. It's been an interesting time to be a travel journalist. You never can tell what the future will hold, of course. But usually you're able to see over the next hill. And I feel like uh, I've been in a deep fog for a year (laughs) trying to figure out what will come next. And it seems like the fog is starting to lift thanks to the introduction of the vaccines, thanks to the Biden administration coming in with much clearer rules and new fines. We have a little bit of a warning on Fromers.com. If you do not wear masks on public transportation and you're caught, and by public transportation, I mean anything that the federal government would oversee, those types of public transportation that go between states. So planes, trains, buses, and ferries. Anyway, if you are caught not wearing a mask, that's a $250 fine. And if you're caught several hun- several times, it's going to be $1,500. We also have a really fun article up about souvenirs all around the world. What is the most typical souvenir? Some were pretty obvious, like nesting dolls in Russia. Some are obvious if you've been there, like argan oil in Morocco. Argan oil is the stuff that's put into very expensive shampoos because it makes your hair very shiny and smooth. And when you go to Morocco, sometimes you'll visit a collective of women who gather the, I believe it's nuts to make the oil. It must be nuts because it's from a tree. So you'll, you'll often visit these collectives and see the argan oil being made But more fun, I hate to say it, but more fun is out in the fields. The argan trees are these very gnarled, old looking trees, kind of squat with very wide branches. And that's important because there are these goats that love to climb the argan trees. And so you're driving down the road and you look to your left and, oh my goodness, there are 20 goats hanging out in the branches of that tree. It is the oddest sight you'll ever see. It's it's really delightful. So that's for Morocco. And this was interesting, I thought. Most popular souvenir in London, and it, it makes a lot of sense, actually. Umbrellas. 
you're going to need them. And I guess you can have cute things printed on them. London Bridge, whatever it is. So we have a lot of fun articles on all types of things. We've been concentrating a lot on what's next, as I said at the very beginning of this. And so we have some some advice on visiting Hawaii in the next couple of months, for example. Uh, what's going to be happening with cruising, as I discussed earlier. So that's it for this week's show. I thank you so much for listening. And whatever travel means to you right now, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. See you next week. Mm-hmm.